Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the LSE for this evening. My name is Nick Olton, and I'm at the Centre for Macroeconomics at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and I'll be chairing this session. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Stephen King to the LSE today. Stephen King is Senior Economic Advisor at HSBC, which used to stand for Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. I don't know whether it still does, whether it's like BP, that's just BP. But, um, it's apparently BP. It's BP, well, not, okay. Not BP, but uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he is Senior Economic Advisor there, and previously he was HSBC's Group Chief Economist. He also serves as an advisor to the House of Commons Treasury Committee, and he is the author of three books. The latest is entitled Grave New World, The End of Globalization, The Return of History, and it is this latest book that he will be discussing with us tonight. Um, I guess the modern era of globalization began with the movement to liberalize trade in the years after World War II. There was a parallel process of regional integration, as with the North American Free Trade Area, NAFTA, and with the European Economic Community, EEC, which morphed into the European Union. Globalization deepened with the liberalization of capital markets in the 1980s and after. Recent decades have also seen the emergence of China as the world's largest economy, heavily engaged in international trade and investment. And as well as flows of capital, we've also seen large flows of people, and I'm thinking here of economic migrants rather than refugees, into North America and Europe. In theory, the process of globalization still has a long way to go. For example, you might say that the end state will be when wage rates are the same across the world for comparable types of job, and also when the rates of return to capital are equalized across the world. Um, well, obviously, we're not there yet. Um, on the one hand, if we think about what we think about globalization, I know Stephen will be talking about this, we can view globalization as a largely benign process, which has raised the living standards of hundreds of millions of people across the world. So if it came to an end, that will be a worrying prospect. On the other hand, globalization is clearly placing great strain on the already developed societies of the West. Stephen will argue tonight, I think, that in fact globalization is now coming to an end for reasons which he will explain to us. And he will discuss with us the consequences for living standards and indeed for peace and security of a world of rival nation-states, each pursuing incompatible aims. Just a couple of housekeeping notes before I ask Stephen to deliver his lecture. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE King. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. And this evening's event is being recorded, will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. So, as usual, after the lecture, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Stephen. And there will also be a book signing taking place following the event. Copies of his book, Grave New World, are on sale outside the venue, just, just outside those doors there. And if you wish to buy a book and you wish to have it signed, then you can bring it back up here on stage and Stephen will, will sign it. 
So the format of this evening's lecture is that Stephen will speak for 30 to 40 minutes, then there will be 30 minutes for questions. But now, would you please join with me in welcoming Stephen King to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled The End of Globalization, The Return of History. Well, thank you very much indeed for those kind words, and uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I wanted to start uh, with an apology for those of you who are hoping to see the other Stephen King. Um, I'm not him. Um, I do have a tend to specialise in writing books with uh, scary titles. Uh, this one's called Grave New World. The last one was called uh, When the Money Runs Out. The first one was called Losing Control, uh, which is the title of my book. It also turned out, I discovered this only in hindsight, it was the title also of a pornographic DVD, which was uh, also available for purchase on Amazon. It's a very strange thing, although my book was outselling the DVD, which I was quite pleased about in many ways. Um, I, I also want to make a point about Grave New World because it is this sort of idea of um, globalization going into reverse. And people have said, well, you're only writing that because of uh, what's happened with, with Brexit and what's happened with Donald Trump. And if it hadn't been for these things, then you wouldn't have bothered writing the book. So I wanted to point out that I actually started writing the book in 2015. Um, and uh, I started writing the book on the basis that I thought something was beginning to go wrong. I wasn't quite sure what it was. Uh, and only in hindsight, when Brexit and Trump came along, could I reasonably say, well, here's some evidence that I was uh, talking along the right line. So in a peculiar way, I'm enormously thankful uh, to Donald Trump for making my book more relevant than might otherwise um, have been the case. Um, but I wanted to, to kick off really with what I call a kind of straw man, um, because the book subtitle is The End of Globalization and the Return of History. Um, and uh, the Return of History, of course, is a uh, a sort of resonance of something that famously written back in 1989, uh, the Francis Fukuyama uh, paper, uh, which, of course, was called um, the, the, the End of History. Um, and in the, the Fukuyama paper back in 1989, he basically argued that uh, Western uh, liberal uh, democracy had triumphed, uh, that free market capitalism had triumphed, that authoritarianism was in retreat, uh, and basically uh, that the West had won. And Fukuyama's timing was absolutely impeccable because, of course, that was the year... Uh, that the Berlin Wall came down. So there was a sort of sense that uh, he was absolutely talking along the right lines. Um, and in the hindsight of uh, Fukuyama's paper, uh, people, I think, in the West, politicians in particular, began to believe that he absolutely was right. Uh, and there was stuff that they could do now that perhaps was unthinkable during the Cold War, uh, but stuff that they could do that would make the world as a whole a better place. And it's quite striking um, how these values came through over the years that followed. So I wanted to kick off with a, with a quote, uh, and this is from uh, a famous American politician, specifically George W. Bush. Um, and this is uh, something he said uh, quite a few years after Fukuyama had spoken, but it uh, is very consistent uh, with the, the Fukuyama message. He said that, uh, this is a speech in, in 2003, uh, he said, the failure of Iraqi democracy uh, would embolden terrorists around the world, increase dangers to the American people, and extinguish the hopes of millions in the region. Um, Iraqi democracy will succeed, and that success will send forth the news from Damascus to Tehran that freedom can be the future of every nation. The establishment of a free Iraq at the heart of the Middle East will be a watershed event in the global democratic revolution. Now, back in 2003, a few years after Fukuyama had written his paper about the end of history, um, some people clearly believed that that might actually be correct, that this might actually be uh, the true story. 
As it turns out, of course, that hasn't really worked out very well at all. Um, and the other thing that came through in the years that followed Fukuyama was the idea that globalization would take off. And globalization was a story about borders coming down, uh, the ability of humans to contact each other and be connected with each other uh, in ways that were unimaginable during the Cold War. So you'd end up with a story whereby uh, you have freedom of movement of goods and services, capital and people, uh, very much the sort of uh, the four freedoms we think of uh, within the European Union. But rather than being restricted to the European Union alone, somehow these freedoms uh, would spread to the rest of the world. Um, and therefore, we'd end up with a greater efficiency with which resources would be allocated. We'd end up particularly with the idea that growth would spread, not just from the West, but to places like China and India. And as these countries got richer, uh, so the West also uh, would become a lot richer because, of course, the great thing about this story uh, is that as China and India were growing, it would boost world trade growth, and therefore anyone who's an exporter from the States or from Europe themselves would do well. That would lift incomes in those countries. And therefore, globalization basically make everyone significantly better off than had been the case previously. And it was a really powerful story, and of course many people believe that story, and it seemed to work uh, extremely well uh, over many, many years. It's worth stressing that if you look at the changes in living standards in the years that followed, a country like China went through a truly epic transformation. And we often forget the degree to which China has transformed over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So just to give you some numbers on this, if you go back to 1980, uh, when Deng Xiaoping was first thinking about his reforms in China, uh, per capita incomes in China were the equivalent of those in the US in around about uh, 1780 or 1790. So effectively, uh, they were, the, roughly speaking, the income levels that you saw just after the um, American uh, independence. Uh, by 2010, per capita incomes in China had risen to the equivalent of those in the US in around about uh, the 1930s. So as a rough rule of thumb, China has delivered every 10 years, every decade since 1980, an increase in living standards, the equivalent of what the US took 50 years to achieve. So we've been through this truly epic transformation. And if you think about globalization from a, a proper sort of global perspective, you can really point to the way in which living standards have been transformed in various parts of the world. And if this is all true, then you think, well, what's gone wrong? If it's such a great story, if it works so perfectly, uh, why would anyone be saying that globalization might be in trouble, uh, that it's possibly going into reverse, that people are rejecting some of the values um, of globalization? Um, and the answer, in many ways, is, is, is very simple, um, that a series of the predictions that, that Fukuyama made didn't really quite work out in the way that had been expected. So come back to China, first of all. Uh, the idea that Fukuyama had was that liberal democracy and free market capitalism went hand in hand. And without those two things operating together, you couldn't really see big increases in income. And yet China was not a liberal democracy, yet had seen this tre tremendous transformation in living standards in a relatively short space of time. A second big thing that happened was that we had this belief that somehow capitalism uh, would make people better off. But even before the global financial crisis, there were parts of the world where financial instability was becoming a greater and greater risk. I'm thinking here in particular of the Mexican crisis back in 94, the Asian crisis that followed shortly thereafter, the Russian debt default, uh, the Latin American crisis that happened at the end of that particular decade. So you had a series of events that took place that were worrisome from the perspective that somehow global capitalism would work uh, for everyone. It wasn't working for many, and the abolition of, of capital controls and exchange controls, which was a way of opening up countries to the rest of the world, proved in many cases to be a source of tremendous instability. But in the book, I, I make the rather obvious point, really, that 
for all these areas of instability elsewhere in the world, the thing that really changed attitudes towards globalization uh, was the global financial crisis. Because the global financial crisis revealed a great deal of things about the West uh, that hitherto had been sort of kind of ignored. Um, and we began to realize that things hadn't quite worked out for the West in the way that people had claimed in the years prior to that story. And the global financial crisis uh, was extraordinary for a variety of reasons, but it, it, it was in the aftermath of what was a true revolu revolution um, in global capital flows. And I wanted to give you a sense of how things have changed just over the last 20 or 30 years, because we have one big story, which is the rise of China, another big story, which is the huge increase in capital flowing across borders and being invested in different parts of the world. So I have some numbers here, and numbers are sometimes quite boring, but these numbers, I think, are quite important. So if you go back um, to around about 1900, so uh, just before the First World War, and look at foreign holdings um, of international capital as a share of the world's activity, the world's output. The figure was around about 20%. Basically says that most of the capital that was owned was owned within countries, but a big chunk, increasing chunk, actually was owned across countries. But of that 20% figure, 10% uh, uh, was owned, half of it was owned by the British. And of course, the reason for that was the British Empire, which you know, basically controlled about a quarter of the world's surface at the time um, and had created a sort of capital market that worked within the confines of that empire itself. Two world wars later, 1945, that figure of 20% drops to just 5%. You've got basically autarky with regards to capital markets. There's no connection uh, from one country in the world through to other countries. The whole thing is completely broken down thanks to two world wars. By 1980 the figures back up to actually over 25%, so a much higher number, even surpassing what we saw back in 1900. But it's the numbers that follow that are really quite remarkable, the extent to which global capital markets grew at a fantastic rate of knots. So just to give you the numbers, um, in, uh, in 2000, the figure was up to 110%, and by 2007, this is a really gobsmacking number, the figure's up to over 200%. So you've got this massive increase in the holdings of capital, uh, holdings of assets around the world, associated with this massive integration of capital markets. Um, and then after the financial crisis, numbers have come down, which is hardly surprising. But the figure in 2014, which is the latest numbers we have, is still at around 190%. Um, so we've been through a revolution in terms of capital markets. But I'd like to argue that this revolution has been a particularly awkward one because it also betrays something about how we believe the world was operating, which is a change in my view from how things had been in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. And to understand this, you have to go back a little bit in history. So at the end of the Second World War, um, the Allied countries, specifically the US and the UK, because these are the ones that are the key part of the story, uh, these countries decided we couldn't have another Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles was a disaster. You had to move instead towards a much more integrated world. Uh, you wanted to move away from empires, well, at least the Americans wanted to move away from empires. I'm not sure about the British. They were still quite keen on their empire. But nevertheless, uh, the Americans were very keen to move away from empire. And they wanted to create a series of institutions internationally which would kind of set the rules of the game, which would allow countries to understand how they would relate to each other and would provide certain assurances if things went wrong from time to time. And these international institutions include, most obviously, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the World Bank. Uh, you might even add the UN to this, perhaps, but certainly the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is the, the forerunner of uh, the World Trade Organization. Um, and from a European perspective, um, you also had 
the sort of seed capital through the Marshall Plan, which is an incredible act of generosity from the Americans after the Second World War, uh, sort of seed capital which eventually led to the creation of the European coal and steel community, which of course was the forerunner um, of the European Union itself. So you have these institutions, these international institutions being created, which set the rules of the game, and in one sense allowed globalization to take off. And you can see the evidence for this. You can see that, for example, GATT led to massive reductions in tariffs around the world, that trade became a more and more important part of the global story, that countries became ever more integrated. And the growth of exports in the 1950s and 1960s was absolutely stellar. It was an extraordinary story. You can think about the IMS role before it became a kind of, you know, a, a sort of a, a blame story. But uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the IMF increasingly supported countries that found themselves in temporary balance of payments difficulties, sometimes imposed some pretty tough love on them, but nevertheless it provided some degree of support. Um, and effectively, it seems as the world worked according to a series of rules. But the problem with this huge increase in capital is that there's actually no institution in the world that can really cope with that volume of cross-border capital flows. And what happened really around about the 1990s and beyond, partly in influence of Thatcher and Reagan and so on, was the sense that markets themselves always worked. Markets would never fail. And therefore, it didn't matter that the institutions weren't there. It didn't matter there was no governance of capital flows because all that really mattered was the idea that markets themselves could efficiently allocate their capital in ways that would ensure that no one could possibly lose. And just to emphasize the point, prior to the global financial crisis, there was a tremendous sense of optimism that nothing really could go wrong. Indeed, that policymakers had mastered the big challenges um, of the global economy. There was something called uh, the Great Moderation. Um, the Great Moderation was the idea uh, that as long as inflation came down and stabilized over a period of time, that low stable inflation meant stable activity. Stable activity meant no recessions. No recessions meant we could all be very happy. And Gordon Brown, you may recall, uh, concluded that he could uh, avoid boom and bust because effectively the Great Moderation would guarantee that. And it wasn't just Gordon Brown. Ben Bernanke, uh, at the time of the chair of the Federal Reserve, talked about the idea that with low inflation, you were reducing the risk of some kind of economic crisis. Uh, Olivier Blanchard, the chief economist at the IMF at the time, talked again enthusiastically about the idea of the great moderation being something that reduced the chances of financial crises. So in a sense, in the run-up to the financial crisis, there was this almost universal belief that markets themselves, without institutional underpinnings, could give you the right result, nothing could possibly go wrong. And when things did go wrong, it kind of revealed there was a tremendous crisis at the heart of financial capitalism, because when things went wrong, no one quite knew who should pick up the bill or what shares of the bill should go to, for example, creditor nations, debtor nations, banks, shareholders, bondholders, taxpayers, all incredibly uncertain, because these things weren't supposed to go wrong. But once they did go wrong, it also revealed something else that is a problem for the Fukuyama thesis. And that is that if you look at the post-crisis conditions in the West, we've ended up with a series of, of difficulties, a series of challenges that I don't think uh, anyone really anticipated before the crisis happened. The first challenge is that growth in the West is much lower than it used to be. Um, and it's low not just compared with the experience of China and India, which have happily carried on growing at a rapid rate. It is also incredibly low compared with the West's own economic history. The last 10 to 15 years have been absolutely pathetic from the point of view of rising living standards. And you might say you can compare, I don't know, the UK doing worse than France or Germany or the US doing worse than, I don't know, whichever country you want to mention. But across the whole area, 
the numbers have been disappointing. We have not been transforming our lives in the pace that we saw in previous decades. And this politically is a huge problem. Because in the West, we've become very good at making promises to ourselves based on the continuation of the pace of increases in living standards that we saw in previous decades. As we make promises on pensions and healthcare and education and defence and whatever it is, uh, those promises are there. And, of course, it's easy to make them so long as you have continuous growth, rising tax revenues, everything straightforward. But the problem today is that in the absence of this kind of uh, continued growth, the revenues don't come in. And then you end up with a battle over resources. And it's striking, actually, if you think about just the, the general election uh, last week, and you think about the campaigns fought by uh, the Tories and by Labour, in one sense, they were peculiarly rather similar. Because they were all talking about how we're going to allocate and divide up the cake, rather than talking about how we're going to grow the cake. It's almost as if people have run out of ideas of how we get back to the kinds of growth rates of old. And that's a problem politically, because if you haven't got the growth rates of old, you can't deliver on every promise you've made, and the broken promises make you politically increasingly unpopular. And the other big challenge that's been revealed, um, and it's partly because of, in the US in particular, the, the, the sort of unwinding of the housing bubble, which had been so powerful um, for, for so many years, is that people have begun to recognize that there's a kind of them and us within societies. Look at the increase in income inequality in the US. has been absolutely vast over the course of the last uh, two or three decades. It's not quite so true in the UK and Europe, although the issues still exist in a slightly different format. So in the UK, the problem is not so much that income inequality across the country has gone up a long way, but it has gone up regionally. So if you live in Greater London, we've done pretty well. If you live in Wales, you've done fairly poorly. Uh, average Welsh incomes today are only 40% of those in Greater London, which is an extraordinary divide uh, within the country. And it's striking, actually, that the parts of the country which tend to do less well over the last few decades are precisely those that on balance, voted for Brexit rather than for Remain. So I think there's a connection between political choice um, and the relative performance by region. And then in the Eurozone, um, it's not so much by region, nor so much as it rising income inequality within countries. It is rising income inequality between countries. Um, and one of the striking examples here is Germany versus Italy. Uh, back in 1999, when the Euro was first created, Italian living standards were about 90%. Um, of those in Germany. Today, they're only 75% of those in Germany. And actually, Italy's seen barely any change in living standards over the last 18 years. It's a pretty catastrophic result for a country that, again, has been used to rising living standards year by year, decade by decade. Something basically has gone wrong. Now, here's a big political challenge, because as an <coughs> economist, I can sort of point to lots of things that might have gone wrong, that might have had an impact on income distribution, uh, that might have been happening with nothing whatsoever to do with globalization. So the most obvious one is technology. We know in the US that a lot of jobs have been hollowed out as a consequence of uh, robotics or computerization, a lot of clerical jobs, people who might have in the past thought they had a job for life, suddenly discover their job has gone. And many of those people, not all, but many of them, are often forced to compete uh, for jobs which are kind of lower down the pay scale, which, of course, puts an even more downward pressure on those who've already got those kinds of jobs. So it's a technology story. It's not directly connected with globalization, although the two obviously are linked in significant ways because of capital mobility in recent times. You might talk about uh, problems with education. Uh, you might say that in the UK, too many people go to university rather than other forms of tertiary education. People aren't learning enough skills or engineering skills or whatever it might be. 
Uh, all these things are perhaps constraints in the UK. You might talk about the fact that if you look at the, the internationally comparable PISA test results across different countries, you will find that if you live in, say, China, uh, or parts of China, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, if you're 15 years old, you like to be highly numerate, highly literate, with tremendous scientific knowledge. And you make the similar comparison across 15-year-olds in the States or in the UK, you find they've fallen significantly behind on average. Uh, so you might point to that as an issue. You might point to social mobility as an issue, say that people in the US back in the 50s who were born into poverty could escape from poverty very easily, whereas today it's not quite so easy. It's not so straightforward. Uh, so again, p- you know, things have changed compared to what happened um, in the past. But the problem with each of these is that although they might be true, they're quite difficult to sort out politically because to fix them can actually take a very long time. Or indeed, you can't fix them at all. So technology is a really puzzling one uh, because actually it's moving so quickly that even if you wanted to have a fix, you might discover the fix is too late. When it comes to education, it might be a 20 or 30-year reform. It's just too long for the electoral cycle um, in the West. When it comes to social mobility, difficult again to wave a magic wand and solve that particular problem. So what do you do? What do you offer instead as a political message? You say, I know. Actually, the problem isn't what's going on internally. It's because of those people over there, or those people over there, or those people over there. It, it's, it's, it's basically people elsewhere in the world, or maybe the stranger within, who is causing the difficulties that this particular country or this region has. You begin to effectively blame other people, other countries. You begin to blame globalization uh, for the difficulties that have opened up um, in the West. And in one sense, it's a relatively easy political message to sell. And I want you to think about this just from the example of a, I don't know, an American worker, let's say in the Midwest, who's trying to work out whether their own individual situation is better or worse as a consequence of globalization. This is a story about changes in different kinds of prices. So, first of all, uh, this worker is in a manufacturing company, worried about the possibility of being outsourced to China or India, therefore their wage is under downward pressure. So they're a loser from globalization. On the other hand, they're also paid, not just in wages, but also in terms of some kind of share option scheme. And because the company's threatening to move some of its uh, activities to China, uh, it's been more profitable, therefore the share option scheme is worth more. So as a share owner in that company, uh, the person's doing quite well. On the other hand, uh, the person drives to work in a gas-guzzling SUV and discovers that because of China's rapid growth, oil prices are higher than they once were, and therefore it costs more for them to get to work, and therefore they're a loser from globalization. But then this person also happens to be someone who loves watching TV and has loads of flat-screen TVs all around the house. And, of course, the price of those has collapsed thanks to outsourcing to China. So is this person a winner or a loser from globalization? The answer is I've got no idea. In aggregate, I might say people win. But in terms of the individual story, it's really difficult to work out. And I think economists in general have forgotten this sense of the individual experience as opposed to the collective experience, something which really matters in terms of, as, in fact, Donald Trump put it, uh, one of the only things he got right, as far as I can see, he talked about the forgotten men and women of America. And in one sense, he was right that people had been forgotten about because there were lots of people who, in, in a net terms, in aggregate terms, had somehow lost out. I wasn't quite sure why they'd lost out, but the globalization story was one that was relatively easy um, to defend. So what you end up with in this story is, is effectively a kind of a new narrative that begins to emerge a narrative that basically says we should retreat from the arrangements over the last few decades. We should retreat from the rules of the game that were established by the IMF or the World Bank or the EU. 
we should, in one sense, instead retreat into the safety, the sanctity, the security of the nation-state. And throughout the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, there's always been a conflict between the two. Prior to the 20th century, nation-states weren't really a big issue because most nation-states were buried within empires. And the arrangements we had in the 19th century were very much imperial uh, rather than the idea of 200-plus nation-states that exist within the UN today. So things have moved on a long way. But globalization and nation-states, in one sense, are, are unhappy bedfellows. The idea that you have uh, sovereignty at the national level but at the same time want the benefits of globalization is, is a tricky one to pull off. And the more globalization you want, the more sacrifice you have to make in terms of your individual nation's sovereignty. And getting that balance right has proved to be difficult, and it's also proved to be a source of increasing friction. It comes back to the idea that nation-states over time are not just purely market economies. Uh, they're economies that also provide a huge number of public services. When you're providing a large amount of public services, often free at the point of delivery, you have to decide who is entitled to get those public services. And once you have that debate, you're having a debate about immigration. You're having a debate about all, all the kinds of things that are difficult, but nevertheless, it's a trade-off between the benefits of public services to all and the restriction you simply can't afford to pay it for every single person that exists uh, on the planet. Therefore, there has to be some decision as to who gets it, who doesn't. And that sort of retreat into the nation-state, in one sense, is a, a kind of a, a way of saying... We're not so sure about the benefits of globalization anymore. We want to make sure we preserve our benefits for our people, which, of course, immediately says, well, who are your people, who are not your people? And that goes back to that debate about um, immigration. Now, if you're feeling a little bit depressed at this stage, um, I wanted to move on to a couple of new challenges, bigger challenges to globalization in the years ahead. The first of these is technology. And the second is demographics. Now, with technology, a lot of people have argued that it's obviously the key driver of globalization, that whatever happens in terms of institutions and ideas, governance and so on, it's technology that inevitably joins us up closer and closer together. And there have been a whole series of articles and analyses of this. I think it was a McKinsey report a year or two years ago, which was pointing out that uh, if you look at the, the volume of, of digital flows across countries over the last two or three years, even though trade itself, physical trade, is dying away, digital trade is expanding at an extraordinary rate of knots. The question, though, is, is whether that trade is valuable or otherwise. I'm a little bit of a, a cynic with this, and I, and I certainly look at uh, the kind of digital technology that's transferring from border to border. A lot of it's video, cat videos, pornography, whatever it is. It may be all very entertaining, but it's not stuff that necessarily guarantees that the world becomes a more productive place as a consequence of this kind of, of integration. But also... I wanted to make the point that, that technology is often seen as something which is, by definition, something that makes us better, more valuable um, over time. And, and that, again, is not entirely obvious. Um, so I wanted to quote something, actually, which comes from, from Davos. Um, because Davos, of course, is the, the great home of the global elites. Um, and there's people who believe that technology always makes the world a better place. No surprise, because, of course, Davos is full of people who... Uh, make technology, so they would say that, wouldn't they? But um, So this is a quote from Davos, um, and it gives you a sense of why we should be sometimes a little bit sceptical um, about uh, whether technology really does create more in the way of globalization. So uh, this person is talking about technology. He's in Davos. He says the following. He says, the technology brought nature increasingly under its control by creating new lines of communication and by triumphing over climatic conditions it was also proving to be the most dependable means by which to bring nations closer together, 
furthering their knowledge of one another, paving the way for people-to-people exchanges, destroying prejudices, and leading at last to the universal brotherhood of nations. And you think, that's jolly inspiring. It's just a wonderful statement of the benefits of technology. Until I point out to you that um, those words appeared in Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, which was set in Davos, uh, published in the 1920s, uh, but set specifically in the year 1913. Um, and uh, the person I'm referring to there is a guy called Ludovico Settembrini, who is the Italian rational optimist of his day. And, of course, Thomas Mann's having a huge amount of fun sort of pointing out that this person who believed in technology and the universal brotherhood of nations didn't quite spot what was going to happen the year after 1913. Um, so things can often go very badly wrong. Uh, when you look at technology, I think there's something which has emerged recently, which partly explains why Trump has done so well, connected directly with certain aspects of technology, and in particular the idea of, of social media. Now, I use social media myself uh, from time to time. I'm reasonably active on Twitter. I quite like it in many ways. But there's something very odd about uh, social media, which is that when the Internet first came through, people, I think, began to believe this would be a way of searching for the truth, Uh, You couldn't hide behind falsities. You couldn't hide behind uh, untrue beliefs of one sort or another. But I put it to you that I think increasingly social media is a way of finding other people quickly who believe what you already believe and therefore encourages herding. It actually encourages breakdowns in relationships rather than improved communication. It creates a world whereby actually differences linger rather than go away. And it creates these because, in one sense, technology itself creates information which is curated in a way to benefit what you already believe. And there was an interesting study done by the Wall Street Journal uh, just before the presidential election. They created two separate Facebook accounts. One was a red account for the Republicans, one a blue account for the Democrats. And they created these accounts and wanted to find out what kind of news information was being sent to these two accounts, just to find out whether there was some difference in the news feed that people got. And the news stories were remarkably different, totally different. Uh, So if you were a Republican, you were never challenged in your views. And if you were a Democrat, you were never challenged in your views. And you might say that people who read the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, or the Guardian uh, are never challenged in their views. But there is a big difference between uh, having an editor that has to answer to some kind of press uh, council or whatever and having an algorithm, which in one sense is blind, and just provides you with what you already want to hear. And so I think one of the dangers with, with social media is that although it's got many benefits, it doesn't necessarily be a a process that searches for truth. And as a consequence, technology doesn't necessarily create, if you like, a a, a sort of common belief system around the world that actually allows globalization itself to grow. It can do exactly the opposite at times. And if you think about Donald Trump, he succeeds partly through social media. He's hardly um, a great spokesman for globalization. He's someone who wants to break the the US away from the rest of the world, talking about America first. Um, or maybe eventually America last, but whatever it's going to be, it certainly isn't America joined together with everybody else. So quite a significant shift that's taken place um, in recent times. And the other big change I mentioned is demographics. And demographics is, is something which, again, is, is quite extraordinary. And it's a numbers game, and it's a really important numbers game for the decades ahead. It raises other big questions about the institutions that allow our global governance at the moment. So... I want to use an example of two countries. Uh, The first is Italy, the second is Nigeria. And the reason for doing that is that in 1950, uh, Italy's population was around about 47 million people, and Nigeria's was about 38 million people. So there's a difference, but they're kind of quite close in terms of the relative size of their populations. Today, uh, the Italian population is up to 60 million, 
and the Nigerian population is up to around about 180 million. The United Nations has projections for population going through to the end of the 21st century, and these are truly remarkable. We might you know, have some doubts about uh, the calculations that are made, but nevertheless, you give you a sense of what is, what is likely to be changing. They're based on very simple assumptions about uh, infant mortality rates, fertility rates, uh, life expectancy when you reach adulthood, all these kinds of things. You plonk that into a, a little spreadsheet, uh, you look at the experiences of other countries over the course of the last few decades, and you come up with some really staggering numbers. Um, so by 2050, which is only you know, 33 years away from where we are currently, uh, Nigeria has a population of around about 400 million. Um, and by 2100, it has a population of around about just over 700 million. These are fantastically large numbers. And you think that applies not just to Nigeria, but almost the entirety of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and according to the UN, sub-Saharan Africa will, come, will, will account for, a, roughly speaking, 40% of the world's population by 2100, compared with about... 10 or 16% currently. So it's a huge transformation, partly because of the growth of the population in Africa and partly because of the shrinkage of the population elsewhere, which is about population aging in Europe. But the really big changes that are coming through are in China, South Korea, Taiwan. These are countries that are aging very quickly indeed. Japan, of course, as well. And as they shrink, Africa will expand. Raising the big question, Africa is a very poor part of the world. There are pockets that are growing very quickly, but it's still pretty poor. Uh, living standards amongst the lowest in the world. If you have this kind of population growth and a modest rise in incomes, we know from history, roughly speaking, what tends to happen. People move. They want to have a better life elsewhere. And in the book, I talk about uh, a 19th century experience because we often think of globalization about trade. But in the 19th century, a lot of it was about movement of people, uh, in particular, of course, from Europe uh, to North America. And initially, say, in the 1850s, a lot of the movement was associated with the U.S. reaching out for highly skilled workers, particularly from England and from Germany, which are going through the Industrial Revolution already, uh, whereas the U.S. was a little bit uh, behind compared with uh, what was happening in Europe. But, of course, there were also other people going across to uh, the U.S. at the same time, uh, largely uh, the Irish, who, of course, were suffering terribly from the potato famine in the 1840s and 1850s. The Irish made the journey not because they had opportunity in the U.S., but because they were trying to escape from desperate circumstances at home. And the numbers were very, very large. Roughly speaking, between one and two million people from Ireland made the journey across the Atlantic. They made the journey in what were known as coffin ships, for an obvious reason, which is that 20% of the people who made the journey died on the way. It was a hideous experience. I mention this because when you look at what's happening in the Mediterranean recently, you get the same kinds of images being created. But I think we're going to see a bigger and bigger set of numbers coming through in the years ahead. And I would argue that Europe in particular is ill-prepared to even contemplate the consequences of this. Uh, Europe's having enough difficulties uh, trying to cope with uh, refugees from Syria or Afghanistan, uh, let alone the large numbers I think are likely to make the journey um, in the years ahead, which raises some really big questions again about global governance. Uh, do you uh, stop that migration moving? And if you do, how do you improve the lot um, of people um, in Africa and elsewhere? And actually, I can link the technology and demographic stories together. Because another feature of technology, uh, which is potentially worrisome from this perspective, is that technology with robotics may increasingly encourage so-called reshoring. The global supply chains of the last 50 or 60 years, part of the globalization story, have created wealth not just in the West, but also increasingly in other parts of the world, notably in Asia. It's been a real transformation. 
And of course, it's partly because capital is mobile. It can go and invest in places where labor is a little bit cheaper. But if it turns out that robots are even cheaper than the cheapest labor, under those circumstances, when you have reshoring, you'll create the sort of equivalent of gated communities, gated nations. And then you've got a really big difficulty working out how to look after the people who are not part of those gated nations. Will they make the journey? If they do, how do they get into those gated nations? How do the gated nations cope with these people? It's a big, big uh, and moving question, I think, uh, for the decades ahead. So these are all problems. Uh, What are the uh, potential um, solutions to all of this? Um, And in the West, I think there are a couple of things that could be done. And these partly come back uh, to the issues associated with the global financial crisis. Because when we had the crisis and all the losses that came through, there were no rules of the game as to exactly who should take the losses, how should they be divided between different parts of the world, between different countries. And I wanted to think about this again from the point of view of institutions, and it's what I call my Massachusetts and Mississippi story. So imagine that tonight Washington, D.C. is abolished, just goes. The only federal institution that remains... Um, is the Federal Reserve. Um, And the US becomes a series of independent nation-states, but with a common currency. In other words, very similar to what we see in the Eurozone today. Each of these nation-states has its own economic data. It knows how it relates to the other nation-states. And the people of Massachusetts, which is a very rich state in the US, realize that some of their tax dollars have been transferred continuously, year after year after year, to the poor people in Mississippi. And the people of Massachusetts say, well, hang on a minute. We're no longer part of the U.S. We're on our own now. We don't have to pay these tax dollars at all to the people of Mississippi. We're going to stop doing this. We're going to keep them for ourselves. It's our endeavor. It's a reward for our endeavor. There's no particular reason why we have to give the money to the people of Mississippi. So the transfers stop, and Mississippi ends up going into a large balance of payments deficit. Can't fund it, (coughs) and suddenly is faced with the need to impose austerity year after year after year. And so in this story, Massachusetts becomes a lot richer and Mississippi becomes a lot poorer. Uh, But the kind of transfers that used to happen within the U.S. stop happening. Now, I'll give this example because it turns out the distance between Boston, the capital of Massachusetts, and Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, is virtually identical to the distance between Berlin and Athens. Uh, And, of course, the point I'm making is that when you look at the Eurozone, as an economist, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with it, which is that it has a monetary union but it doesn't really have any kind of fiscal union. There's no uh, commitment to transferring tax dollars, or tax euros in this case, uh, from the richer parts of the uh, eurozone to the poorer parts. There's no way of, of supporting the, the system as a whole. So what you need to have in the eurozone, very simply, is a eurozone finance minister, a eurozone finance ministry, all the sorts of things that Macron, interestingly, is pushing for. But it's hugely difficult because if you do it today, it basically means the Germans are on the hook Uh, for what happens in other parts of Europe. So why would the Germans ever agree to it? So you can see that institutions matter because they set the rules of the game for engagement of people in different parts of the world. And when you shrink those institutions, you go back to the nation state uh, rather than to a bigger federal arrangement, you begin to discover that people's behavior actually changes. The second suggestion I want to make is the creation of a new type of Bretton Woods institution. And this new institution is what I call the GOF, uh, the Global Organization for financial flows. And this is directly in response to the global financial crisis. And this sense that somehow the crisis left us with uncertainty as to precisely who pays. And the problem here really is a kind of creditor-debtor problem. 
And it's rather similar in many ways to what you used to see uh, in the 19th century in Victorian Britain, where debtors went to prison, went to the Marshalsea prison, because they were naughty people who borrowed too much, even though the lenders had lent to them in the first place. Um, and what I want to try to do is to get away from the idea that borrowers are naughty and lenders are good. This sort of idea of original sin or something that applies to borrowers, but not to lenders. So what I propose is this, that the GOF, the Global Organization for Financial Flows, will be an organization whereby a country that ends up with a huge balance of payments difficulty, like, say, Greece over the last few years, is able to go to the GOF and say, look, we can no longer fund our balance of payments. Private investors have pulled the money out of our country. We'll be faced with massive austerity. We need your help. And the GOF, which is, has seed capital from all countries that participate, provides that help. It provides an injection of funds into that country for a year, maybe two years. And during that period, uh, the GOF investigates the causes um, of the imbalance. Was it the debtors borrowing too much, or was it the creditors lending too much? Who was the foolish person? Who took the risk? Who should be paying for the mistakes they made? And I would suggest that if you have the GOF, which can rule in an effective way, you might occasionally say, actually, the Greek crisis wasn't just about Greece itself. It was about Germans who lent too loosely, too easily to the Greeks. The basic story that said the creditors were at least at fault as the debtors. You could pull banks into this. You could pull financial institutions and say they're at fault. A, a, a new mechanism it actually means you can actually apportion blame and ensure that the creditors in future would think much more carefully about lending, realizing they could, under certain circumstances, lose their money. And we're a long way away from that currently, but it's something that, again, I would suggest is not such a stupid idea. However, whether I think about the European finance minister or whether I think about the GOF or whatever, I recognize an instantaneous problem, which is that if our politics are moving increasingly towards reclaiming the nation-state and away from these slightly technocratic global organizations, then what I can propose as an economist is not actually likely to happen in terms of the uh, actual policies delivered by each individual country. And as the blame game begins to spread, it becomes increasingly difficult to see how these kinds of organizations, in one sense extensions of the Bretton Woods organizations, can really play a significant role in the years ahead. Now, does that mean that globalization is coming to an end? Um, possibly. We could end up with a really chaotic story. But I think also it's important to recognize that as the West withdraws, as it falls out of love with globalization, as it begins to think we're better off as nation-states doing our separate things, other parts of the world are thinking something slightly different. And the example I want to give um, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the fact that the Americans have pulled out of it, which I have to say would have happened, I think, not just under Donald Trump, but also under Hillary Clinton as well. And to recognize that the Trans-Pacific Partnership was, again, a kind of Bretton Woods institution much later on as a way of connecting North America, parts of Latin America, uh, with the Asian uh, Pacific Rim to end up with a new trade arrangement with rules of the game, similar to what we established uh, at the end of the uh, Second World War, but rules of the game that would encourage integration between countries, rules that would actually allow trade to grow, make countries broadly better off, but on a sort of level playing field. That was what was an offer. But the Americans rejected it, and it's created a vacuum. And the vacuum is one uh, that other countries will seek to fill. Uh, and China, of course, is the most obvious one. If you go back to Davos in January, not so much Davos in 1913, but this is Davos in 2017, and look at the speech that President Xi gave. He talked about the fact that China was willing to pick up the, the baton of economic globalization. And interestingly, as we walk away from our international institutions, the Chinese in the 21st century are creating their own international institutions. 
The first one is what's called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's a, a series of trade connections across Asia. It doesn't include the Americas, but it includes lots of countries in Asia. And it sets the rules of the game for Asian trade, set by the Chinese, not by the Americans. Then you have the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is basically the kind of the equivalent of the World Bank, designed to fund China's Belt and Road Initiative, which China needs because it needs to expand its trade with the rest of Asia to carry on growing. So those connections are very, very important. All the infrastructure that comes on stream, in one sense, it sort of it conjures up images of the Marshall Plan, the idea of money being poured into these cross-border projects, but again, establishing more and more strength for China um, in the years ahead. And then thirdly, you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which effectively is an energy and security relationship between China, Russia, the Central Asian Republics, and I think I saw at the weekend that India and Pakistan have just recently signed up as well. So a series of institutions being created for the 21st century, which rival the 20th century institutions, but which are China-led rather than, the US, rather than US-led. And that leaves me with a couple of thoughts. The first one is that the Chinese story and the American story actually create the beginnings of, I think, a series of conflicting versions of globalization for the 21st century, which in part are based on different countries' history and experiences. Now, in the book, I talk a lot about different regions of the world and how they would interpret globalization in very different ways. So if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, your experience of globalization has been pretty awful uh, over hundreds of years because of slavery. If you're um, in China, you might look back to the Silk Roads over thousands of years. Uh, if you're uh, Iran, you might look back to the Persian Empire and its greatness over you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. All these things offer different images of how the world works and offer different ways of thinking about how the world might connect um, in the years ahead. I suggest the following, though, which is that if you were looking at a map of the world dominated not so much by the Bretton Woods institutions, but instead by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or by the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or the AIIB, and you looked at that world and said, well, who would that world be familiar to? And I think you'd have to go back prior to Columbus to see who that world be familiar to, because if you go back to pre-Columbus and think about how the world worked, it was basically a Eurasian world. Well, where power, economic power, political power, was centered in Asia and Eurasia. And in one sense, Europe was an interesting and slightly boring peninsula connected to the rest of it. And it's only really with Columbus and a massive change that takes place at that point in time that things begin to move on from a Western point of view. But what that also tells you is that globalization may ebb and flow, but can also come to a grinding halt. And I wanted to finish on, on a final observation, uh, which comes from uh, my holiday uh, in southern Spain uh, a year or two years ago. I was uh, staying in, in Seville and Cordoba, and it was a, a wonderful opportunity uh, to think about globalization from two entirely different perspectives, and in particular, two entirely different historical perspectives. Because when you go to Cordoba and Seville, of course, you're looking at uh, not just Christian Spain, but you're looking at Moorish Spain, Islamic Spain as well. Um, and... The extraordinary thing about Cordoba is that you look at the cathedral, uh, or the mesquita, as it's called, in, 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 in Cordoba, and you realize it's a mosque, and someone's dumped a church in the middle of it. It's a very odd experience when you visit uh, the building. You think something really extraordinary has changed over the years. And you look at Seville Cathedral, which happens still to be the biggest cathedral in the world. There's something very odd about Seville Cathedral as well, which is that most of it is just a, you know, a big but bog-standard cathedral. Uh, but the bell tower isn't a bell tower at all. Um, it's a minaret. Uh, with the bells stuck on top of it. And, and when you look at uh, and think about the, hi the history of this, you realize that 
There was a previous version of globalization in southern Spain. It ran from 700 to 1200 AD, 500 years. 500 years of Moorish Spain. 500 years of tremendous technological and economic and intellectual advance that seemed to be continuing indefinitely. And if you've been living in Cordoba or, or, or Seville in, say, 1150 or 1200 AD, you would surely have believed that Islamic globalization would have continued uh, forevermore. Why wouldn't you? And yet, within a relatively short space of time, things changed dramatically. And they changed through a series of accidents, really, which is that the caliph, the ruling caliph in southern Spain, died. He left behind his 10-year-old son to run the place, which didn't work out very well, understandably. Um, and there was a whole bunch of arguments amongst the grown-ups about exactly how things should work out. And 10 years later, the 10-year-old son, now 20, also dies. He doesn't leave a son or heir. And suddenly the ruling conventions of southern Spain break down incredibly quickly. The Christian kings of northern Spain think this is too good an opportunity to miss. And within a very short period of time, Seville and Cordoba are conquered. Uh, the mosque in Seville is, is demolished, apart from the bell tower, the Giralda. Um, and, of course, the cathedral is eventually built um, in the 1400s. But the final irony of the story, and this is why it matters for Western globalization rather than globalization elsewhere in the world, is that Seville Cathedral isn't just on the site of the mosque. It also houses the remains of Christopher Columbus. And when you think about what Columbus did, almost by accident, of course, by sailing across the, to the Americas and, and creating the beginnings of a whole series of new trade in silver and sugar and slavery, suddenly Europe became a much more powerful and dynamic part of the world. And every aspect of history since then, from a European perspective, has been the expansion of European power through to other parts of the world. And what I would suggest is that what we're witnessing currently is an erosion of that power, almost a withdrawal of that power because of the attitude towards globalization in the West, uh, but equally rival versions of globalization beginning to show their heads again because the vacuum is being created and the opportunity is there. And so I finish the book with a reference to uh, not so much Brave New World with Huxley with all his uh, chemical experiments and so on, but rather uh, 1984, just to sort of lift up the mood even more. Uh, and this is a specific aspect of 1984 where Orwell describes uh, these sort of three warring factions in the world, these three warring empires. And of course in the book he refers to Oceania, uh, Eurasia, um, and East Asia. If you simply change those names... Uh, to the US, uh, Russia, and China, you have something which is rather familiar to what we see today with China looking to rival the US for globalization, and Russia in one sense looking to go back to its imperial uh, opportunities and imperial ambitions um, of the 19th century. And what you'll note there is that I've mentioned those three areas, and I haven't mentioned Europe, because Europe, I think, will struggle in this story. It's not quite sure whether its future lies to its west or whether it lies to its east. And for all the internal difficulties that Europe has, I think it finds itself in a very difficult position geographically to work out what it's going to do in the decades ahead. So on that reflective note, uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Stephen, for that uh, most stimulating lecture. Uh, we'll now open the floor to questions um, from the audience. Uh, if you get picked to ask a question, please could you uh, say your name and affiliation, and please also wait for uh, the stewards to bring round uh, a microphone. Okay, so can we have the first question? Can I have a see a, a, see a hand? Uh, yes, over there, please. Thank you. Uh, James Barker, I'm a student. 
you talk about the issues of getting Germany signed up to a fiscal union, Massachusetts to spread if, if the, you know, Washington disappears. Why would those same issues not be raised in your Goff idea? Why would the creditor countries that currently have the power in those international disputes, why would then, in, in general, those are the more powerful ones when it comes to the economic power, why would they then agree to set up your prop proposed institution? Oh, um, I, I should stress that, um, although I think the Goff would work, I'm not convinced it will get off the ground. I'd like it to work. Uh, but I think that uh, exactly for the reasons you, you say, there's a, an imbalance in terms of who pays the bills. Um, but this debate actually goes back a long way. Um, if you go back to Bretton Woods and the debate about Bretton Woods, John Maynard Keynes was pushing heavily for this idea of, if you like, a, a, a symmetry between creditors and debtors. Interesting at the time, the major creditor nation, of course, was the U.S., wasn't going to sign up to it. But it may just be the case now that uh, with the U.S. itself being a debtor nation, it could, in theory, put pressure on other countries more so than it did back then. It's still a pretty powerful country. It could push for that kind of thing. The problem, again, is that if the U.S. itself is withdrawing from its responsibilities globally, then the one country that could push for it is not likely to do so, which is why, in one sense, my, my book ends with a, as a rather gloomy set of thoughts because I, I think I know, in a vague kind of way, what the answers are. I just don't see politically how we'll get to those answers, which is why the world looks a slightly discomforting place. Okay, next question. Uh, yes, please, there. Yeah. Uh, Robin Hanna, alumnus of this institution. Um, one country we didn't mention, but I think um, you're very, I love a lot, India. Now, what's happened here at, at independent India, late Lord Batten, the last viceroy, there was Nehru, there were 360 million Indian people. There's now over 1.2 billion Indians, and I think the population is going farther than China. In a few years' time, it will be the most populous country in the world. And there's an older England, India, uh, from the 18th century. So um, when it comes to globalization and international relations, could you say something about the role of India, which will obviously be very important for the future? Yes. Uh, so first of all, I absolutely agree with your numbers. They're <laughs> obviously right, um, that India will have the, the biggest population in the world within a handful of years. Its demographics are well, basically, its population is much younger than China's, partly because of the one-child policy in China. So if China hadn't had that, maybe China would be a lot bigger than it is, but nevertheless, that's where we are. Um, I think that uh, there are a couple of in interesting issues with India. The first one is that, compared with China, you bump into this kind of Fukuyama problem, which is that India has a democracy, but has grown at only half the pace overall that China has done over the last 20 or 30 years. So there's an interesting conflict there. But the other thing, actually, in relation to China is is what their relationship will be um, in the years ahead, because we know that their relationship has been difficult um, over a number of decades, go back to 62. In the West, we think about 62 as the Cuban Missile Crisis, but if you're Indian or Chinese, you might think about the, the, the border conflict between the two countries. Um, I, I personally think that if India and China could sort out their relationship, which is part of the kind of Belt and Road, um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization type of stuff, if their relationship could be sorted out, then the potential for trade flows between the two countries could be very, very large indeed. Um, and uh, I think that both countries to date have missed that opportunity to become more closely economically integrated with one another. And of course, what it would mean also is that if India could connect not just with China but with other countries, particularly on the South-South basis, so from Asia into Africa into Latin America, um, then China, India would not just be the biggest 
populated country in the world, but becoming richer quicker than perhaps others. But I don't think we're quite there yet. Yes, at the back there, please. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Lucas. I'm studying here at the European Institute. One topic that, in my opinion, relates to global governance, to economics, to migration, that you haven't spoken about at all is climate change. How do we bring that one in? Um, I'm pleased to say that it actually is in the book. Uh, <laughs> if I missed it out, I think I would have not done my appropriate sort of uh, due diligence or whatever you want to call it. Um, the book is not about climate change. If it was, it would be a whole book or possibly a series of volumes of books. But what I do know, and this is particularly on the demographic story, is that demographic movement is often associated, but migratory movement is often associated with um, natural events, including climate change. Well, maybe it's, climate change is not natural. You know what I mean. But, but, but events that change the environment in such ways that make it impossible for people to stay in that particular environment for as long as they might otherwise have done so. Um, and again, there's a connection here with the Irish potato famine because obviously that was initially caused by a fungus which destroyed most of the Irish potato crop. Uh, there were then subsequently huge distributional problems because although food actually did get to Ireland, getting it from uh, the east coast of Ireland to the west coast of Ireland proved to be incredibly difficult. Um, and the famine was as much a problem of distribution as it was about the initial fungus. But nevertheless, uh, you could treat the fungus problem of the 1840s as the equivalent of a climate change problem today. Uh, and certainly in parts of particularly Africa, maybe parts of uh, low-lying parts of Asia, you could easily imagine a situation where people feel it's just not worth them staying where they currently are. They will have to move. So, again, these things are all hugely uh, connected. Uh, I mentioned the connection between technology and demographics, but I think the connection between demographics and climate change is also enormously important um, and will play a very big role in terms of uh, driving migratory flows um, in, the, in the years ahead. Okay, at the top there, I think there was a question. Yes. Thank you. Um, the globalization, as you say, ebbs and flows. Um, and I think when at a time of financial distress, it, um, uh, it what you call ebbs, and it flows otherwise. I think it's the globalization is a secular trend, and there's not much you can do about it. And what, I think what you say, what you talk about, the, what you suggest as the end of globalization is simply the ebb of globalization, because we are going through a, a period of financial distress. And I think it is I should think it is a temporary one. So what do you think? Is it, is it, is it the temporary phrase or just something that will stay, you think? Um, so, so the issue here is that um, I certainly believe that globalization waxes and wanes or ebbs and flows. I, I, that, that I have no problem with at all. Um, my issue, though, is that prior to the financial crisis in particular, there was a sense widely held that globalization was inevitable, unstoppable, and will continue forever. There were famous speeches by Tony Blair and others who said, you just can't get in the way of this. It's going to continue. And yet throughout history, you find plenty of examples of where the reverses take place and can reverse not just for five years or ten years, but for, for, for you know, half a century, maybe even a century. Um, you go back to you know, the period from, say, 1900 through to 1950, well, you wouldn't describe that, really, as a period of intense globalization, quite the reverse. Everything began to break down over that period. Um, you talk about, uh, let's say, I mentioned at the very beginning, I think, the, the end of the, the Roman Empire. Um, and you wouldn't describe that as being you know, the, the beginning of a new set of integration for Europe. I mean, it was a disaster for Europe for the next thousand years or so. Um, so. So my point is that if institutions themselves die or fail and things break down, then even though technology might appear to be advancing, 
it doesn't actually provide the guarantee that globalization really can continue. So it comes back to the idea that, that it's not so much technology that drives it forward. It's ideas and institutions and our willingness to be integrated as opposed to blame each other for the problems that we have. And history is replete with these examples of blame, and it's quite worrying in my view. Okay, at the front, please. Yeah. Thank you, Chairman. Terence Bendixson, University of Southampton. Uh, first, an observation. I think I'm right in saying that in about 1595, a Moroccan ambassador came to London to try and persuade Queen Elizabeth to join um, the North Africans in reconquering Spain, um, which is a nice what-if, if you want to um, Indeed. consider a, a different scenario for yes. Europe. Um, coming back to, to one of your final points about the United States and trumpery and that sort of thing and the need for new institutions, isn't it just possible that Trump will be a very short story, that some new American leader will come whom we don't yet know but who will have um, some classic American international idealism and help to create the sort of institutions that you see as necessary? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not going to forecast how long Trump will last for. I'm, assume, I'm assuming he'll last for four years minimum. But I could be wrong about that. Uh, you know, things can happen. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I, I was in Washington last week, actually, and um, I saw a number of uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And one thing that was striking on the Democrat side was that having lost unexpectedly in the presidential election, there appears to be a tremendous, if you like, shortfall of ideas as to what to do next. Um, so, you know, many Democrats are international, you know, in favor of international institutions, but they think, well, how do we support those and at the same time get elected? And this is a, a huge difficulty. If you take, uh, this is a slight digression, but if you take the choice that we had in the UK uh, last week, everyone's now talking about soft Brexit versus hard Brexit, but what's odd about the UK choice is that you know, effectively neither the left nor the right really offered the sort of choice that many in the centre would like to have as a sort of polarisation, uh, which has actually silenced the votes of many who want something different but can't get it because it's just not an offer um, at the moment. Um, so I think there really is a profound problem here. Um, now, an optimist would say, look at France, look at Macron. You know, he's come in, he's revolutionised uh, people's expectations, he's defeated the Front National, uh, they're now collapsing in terms of their vote, um, and if he can deliver over the next four or five years, then everything will be great. The big question there, of course, as is always with France, is can he deliver? You know, the optimism is very high. It feels a bit like when Obama first came in, with yes, we can, I mean, it's great, but then you know, eight years after Obama, we get Trump. Uh, so that also, I think, reveals some difficulties. And, and just one final historical thing, if I may. I, mean, I, I like your Moroccan story, but I, I believe also that when Columbus sailed west, he was hoping not to get to the Americas, of course, but to get to Asia. And the one specific reason for this is he, he was hoping to do a deal with the great Khan because uh, Christian Europe was terrified about the Ottomans who had just conquered Constantinople. So this was real sort of global politics at work. And, of course... It, it turned out to be very different from people expected, but nevertheless, it did give Europe more power than it ever uh, would have uh, anticipated. Uh, at the front here, please. Yeah. Hi, my name is Ben Fisher. I'm a startup founder. Um, in the 20th century, Good with the you. rise of globalization, uh, it was very much linked hand in hand with neoliberalism. And the largest companies in the world at the time were very much multinational 
um, like big industry companies, that kind of thing. In the West, that's very much changed to technology companies with Google, Microsoft, Apple, which have much uh, smaller overheads, don't really employ the same kind of people where they would have like, mass labor on a grand scale, and there's not so much of an incentive to exploit uh, cheap market labor and cheap market uh, national resources. Do you think that could be one of the reasons why the West is stepping away from uh, globalization just because the nature of their um, markets has changed? Yeah, this is a, a really tricky one. I mean, first of all, you, there's lots of data, really interesting data, looking at the market capitalization of companies and how many people they employ. So you think about I know, Ford or General Motors back in the 1920s. I mean, market cap was big by the standards of the day. You employ huge numbers of people, created communities effectively. And you look at the equivalent of, say, Google or, or um, whatever, Apple, and they employ very few. And even think about the subsidiaries, they employ very few. Uh, so what we have is almost like a winner-takes-all uh, story whereby if you happen to be an early shareholder in that particular company, you will become a, a millionaire, maybe the, even a billionaire, without necessarily doing too much. And often if you've created your killer app, um, you will uh, have not just killed other people in a sense, but you also killed all the other apps. You've been lucky to, for your app to take off when others could easily have done exactly the same thing. There's a kind of lottery ticket aspect to this. Now, one thing that's been discussed, of course, is the idea, well, if this is the case and the money just goes to the, the limited owners of capital and then we should have a basic income, a universal basic income story, which will uh, help to compensate everyone for the possible concentration of wealth. Um, and I thought about this, and I, I have some difficulties with it. Um, one difficulty is that when we look at how people have voted in recent times, it's not so much they're not being compensated in some cases, it's rather that compensation isn't enough to give someone a worthwhile life. People want to achieve things. They want to do things. And simply being told, well, don't worry, here's a, here's a check each month. You'll be okay. You'll live comfortably. It's not quite the same thing as actually having something that's, uh, that's meaningful. But the other problem with universal basic income goes back to my earlier issue about public services, which is if you offer universal basic income in your country, who are you offering it to? Where do you draw the line? Who counts as a citizen? Who doesn't? Now, we've got a very gray area at the moment in terms of who is and who isn't a citizen. But once you have a universal basic income, you absolutely have to decide who's in and who's out. And I'm not sure that the world will quite gel in the way one would like under those circumstances. So I think there are some huge difficulties here, um, but I don't think so far anyone's got the right answer. Okay, so uh, yes, at, at the back there, please. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Martin Lamb. Um, I'm a town planner. Um, I noticed that you were talking before about the changes in technology and potential, the potential issue of uh, reshoring. Um, so you, you mentioned, like, you know, the potential for uh, manufacturing and jobs like that from Asian countries to go back to Western countries, uh, uh, particularly, like, America. Uh, my question is, do you think, what, how do you see the potential for the future of Asian countries, uh, particularly, like, China, Vietnam, and things like that? Um, do you see the wealth in those countries uh, deteriorating again, or have they moved past that in terms of their, uh, their standards of living and levels of education have increased to the point where they're now competitive enough to not need those, I guess, like cheaper sure. yeah, cheaper jobs like that? Uh, well, first of all, I, I should stress that my view on robotics is slightly different from, for example, Richard Baldwin's view on robotics. In his book, The Great Conversions, he uh, tends to argue that robotics will allow you know, wealth are spread to more parts of the world, and that's a good thing. But I would come back to the idea, well, who owns the robots? Who does well from this? And is it really giving wealth to everyone, or is it simply giving 
concentrations of wealth to individual people. I also think from a sort of security point of view, it's easier to imagine that robots will come back home if they can. Uh, so I think it does create these, these breakages in global supply chains. Personally, I think the good news for China, um, Vietnam possibly as well, is, is that they probably have reached a stage where they are um, self-sustaining in some ways. Um, I think that when it comes to China in particular, the Belt and Road story is something that will allow China to connect more and more closely with other countries within the region. And those connections will allow more trade to build, which has not built hugely as yet, but could expand hugely. It would also mean that in China's case that wealth would spread from the eastern coastal regions, which are already pretty well off, into the western inland regions, which are you know, still facing tremendous poverty. So I think there's, there's certainly evidence in China that it could carry on growing. My concern really is for parts of the world that aren't quite as yet engaged in the global supply chains. And the danger with robotics, they'll never get there. Um, and that's much more worrisome, I think, particularly, again, for, for Africa, which is why this comes back to the issue of well, if we don't do it in terms of investment, then rather than capital moving, it'll be people that move um, in, in the years ahead. But certainly I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about parts of Asia, and part of it is because China is creating precisely the institutions that would safeguard an expansion of economic activity in the years ahead in that region. Uh, is there another? <coughs> okay. Hi, I'm Ramin from King's College. I mean, the origin of Fukuyama essay had a question mark at the end, and I think you need the question mark at the end of your title as well. I mean, you seem to suggest that globalization is in reverse, but the data shows that that's not the case. The globalization is still growing, but the pace of growth is slowing down. And that may be you know, well explained by the technological slowdown. So maybe after all, my point is that we shouldn't really panic and relate all this slowdown to the political factors on top. Maybe the slowdown of growth is maybe you know, basically explained by technology. No reason to panic. Uh, I, I, I hope you're right. And I should say that I'm not panicking. Uh, <laughs> not yet. Uh, first of all, to be fair to Fukuyama, he has kind of disowned what he wrote back in 1989. And also he said something interesting um, in his paper in 1989. He quoted Nietzsche. And he said that the obvious criticism of his view is that, and this is the end of history and the last man, was that the last man, uh, having been sort of satiated and feeling perfectly happy, would no longer really have any ambition to better himself. And under those circumstances, we've become, uh, in sort of Nietzsche-esque terms, sort of you know, slaves more than anything else, slaves to our own sort of lack of ambition. And he pointed out there was always a danger that authoritarians would come back and push the story in a different direction. And funny enough, that's exactly what's happened. When you look around the world, the growth of authoritarian regimes and the popularity of authoritarian regimes has, has increased. So to be fair to him, he had got those points in there. But my, my issue really is that many people believed genuinely in the end of history, which is why I quoted the George W. Bush quote um, at, at, at the beginning of the piece. Um, as for the uh, slowing of globalization, um, I should stress that my views are, are not so much what's already happened, it's rather what may happen in the future. Um, now, I think there are already some evidence that globalization is slow, not just in terms of slower growth, but also the fact that the West itself has slowed so much compared with the rest. Something really quite surprising has happened in terms of the pace of Western uh, economic growth over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, I also would note that uh, this is another potential measure of slowing of globalization, is, is that world trade growth has been extremely weak over the last few years. It's recovered a bit over the last year or so, but compared to what you'd normally expect, it's been remarkably soft. And, and you potentially could point to 
um, increased sort of non-tariff barriers and so on beginning to come back as a potential constraint on what's happening with trade. So there are already telltale signs there, but my concern really is that the narrative, the political narrative is changing now, and that's the thing that wor- is worrisome over the next 10 to 20 years. Okay, now there was somebody there who was, I think, been trying to speak for some time. Yes, please, yeah. Good evening. Thank you for your talk, firstly. Um, this is specifically with regards to China. So you mentioned the possibility of China sort of spearheading the next wave of globalization and sort of taking the torch from the U.S. But do you really think it'll be global as opposed to just regional, given China's language barrier and the lack of its soft power as compared to what the U.S.'s was? Yeah, so on the soft power question, uh, this is something which the U.S. believes in quite strongly, although... If you look at uh, reputational measures, the U.S. doesn't score particularly highly despite its soft power. And, of course, the reason why that doesn't matter too much is because the U.S. has got an awful lot of hard power as well. (laughs) And that still matters. Uh, We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the military budget for the U.S. is way ahead of of anybody else's. So soft power is part of it. But I think, in my view, Joseph Nye overstates the story to to a certain degree. And if I can just tell you a little anecdote here. I I was at an event uh, last year, um, and... uh, I had to moderate a session uh, with Jim Baker III, the, the former U.S. Secretary of State, uh, who was the speaker. He spoke for 20 minutes. And then he was talking about soft power and the marvels of the U.S. in the 21st century and how it would continue to keep going. And uh, he sat down, and I turned to him and said, well, imagine that you were in a time machine. You've been transported back to, I don't know, 1900. Um, and you discovered that you were actually English rather than American. Wouldn't you have given exactly the same speech, roughly speaking? He looked at me, laughed, and said, yeah, probably. Um, and my point is that, that pe- pe- people have a strong sense that what they're doing is the right thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that history will judge you kindly at some point in the future. Um, and I think what is striking, mean, the book starts actually with a speech by uh, Joseph Chamberlain, who, who suddenly has become quite interesting because, of course, of Nick Timothy's support for him before Nick decided to uh, fall on his sword over the weekend. But um, yeah, Joe, Joe Chamberlain had, had, was someone who clearly was influential in certain, some parts of the Conservative Party recently. But at the beginning of the book, I quote the speech from him talking about the wonders of uh, British imperialism, how it's going to transform uh, the lives of people in Africa, um, how it was a civilizing force, and how you couldn't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And you look at it and think, yeah, this is pretty strange stuff, but that's what people believe back there. And I don't think Chamberlain was an evil person. I think it's just that that's how people saw the world. Uh, and my, my concern really is, is that uh, the U.S. may be in a similar situation where it might judge it's doing everything correctly, but others will judge it differently um, in, in, in certain ways. Um, as for China itself, well, I, I, it's not so much the regional aspect that matters to me. It's rather the, the limitations of its version of globalization. If you go back to President Xi's speech in Davos in, in January, something he, he says con- continuously through the speech, he doesn't talk about globalization. He talks about economic globalization. And here's the thing, there's a difference in China and the U.S. The U.S. has a, a sense that its values are universal, that if uh, other countries can get access to those values, they will also embrace them. This is, in one sense, part of the Fukuyama thesis, but again, something that the neocons in particular would tend to embrace. Uh, whereas China would say, well, we're not going to make any judgments about country A, country B, country C. We're happy to engage with them economically, but we're not so happy to sort of make judgments about them, and nor are we happy that they make judgments about us. Um, now, that might place, play, play, place a restriction on globalization because what it means is that companies who've invested around the world expecting the same standards, legal standards, uh, governance standards to be applied everywhere well, may discover that in the Chinese version that isn't true. Um, and that might make a, create a limitation as to how much capital can flow across the world. 
Okay, we've got time for maybe one or two more questions. Uh, yes, sir, uh, uh, the white shirt, please. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, Jordan, a uh, student. Um, a question about the Britain of today, particularly around um, Brexit, is depending on who you talk to, views of Brexit could be that Britain is pulling away um, and, and disengaging, but that's either from globalisation or from regionalism. Yep. Um, and one view of Brexit could be that moving away from regionalism actually to re-pivot to other countries such as countries we've mentioned a lot today or you've mentioned a lot um, like China, yep. India, um, potentially even the States in a, in a different format. I was wondering what your view on that was. So one of the peculiarities of voting for Brexit was that people voted for Brexit for a whole range of different reasons. Um, and I would split uh, those reasons into two. This is far too simplistic, but it's, it's a helpful way of thinking about it. There's the kind of 1950s, 1960s nostalgia reason, which is to sort of escape from all the uncertainties of globalisation, to, to sort of hide away within your, your nation-state and, and to cut down immigration and all these kinds of things. Uh, and then the other version, which is the one you've just described, is what you might describe as the Global Britain version, the idea that uh, the common external tariff that the EU has within the single market is something that effectively protects you too much, prevent, prevents you from being productive and innovative and so on, entrepreneurial. And once you're exposed to the rest of the world, you can do much, much better. And there are certainly plenty of people on the Conservative right uh, who believe that, you know, in, including in the Cabinet. Um, now, the question is, uh, is that right? Does it really work? So some people will say, look at Hong Kong, look at Singapore, we can be more like them. But it's very difficult to be more like them. First of all, they're city-states, and not really you know, nation-states. Uh, secondly, they're embedded into the most dynamic part of the world. Their neighbours really help them. And thirdly, they have a fundamentally different view uh, in terms of the balance between education and, and social welfare. Little in the way of social welfare, a huge emphasis on education. Uh, their results in PETA tests are way ahead of, of what we have in, say, the, 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 the UK or the US uh, at the age of 15, which I mentioned earlier on. So, so those countries or cities don't really count, so you have to think about something else. And I'll tell you a little story. I, I was speaking to someone who, quite close to the government, um, possibly in it, but you know, we're not going to mention any names. Um, and, and I said, well, you know, if you're, if you're sort of um, uh, thinking of, of, of countries to emulate around the world that Britain could be more like outside of the EU, which would it be? And I said, you're not allowed to use Hong Kong and you're not allowed to use Singapore. So this person thought about it for a while and he said, well, if I really have to name a country, it'll be Germany. And I looked at him and said, are you sure? Uh, he said, yes, Germany, because it's really good exports, really connected with the rest of the world. You are aware that Germany's part of the EU. Um, and, uh, well, apparently it didn't make any difference. But, but my, my point is that um, there, there, there is this sort of sense that, that uh, we can do better connecting to the rest of the world. But I'm really not convinced that whether you're in or out of the EU makes a lot of difference to that particular argument, precisely because Germany has connected very well to the rest of the, uh, to the, rest of the world. Now, one thing you might say in Britain's favour is that Germany does a lot of engineering goods, a lot of manufacturing goods, a lot of stuff that is associated with infrastructure investment elsewhere in the world. As these countries get richer, maybe they'll demand more in the way of financial services, professional services, and so on. You know, stuff that, allegedly, Britain's quite good at. Um, and so it might turn out that as these countries get richer, then Britain will naturally see greater connections anyway. But that's not directly connected with being in the EU at all. OK, we have time for one more question, I think. Anybody had their hand up for a long time? Uh, uh, up the top there. Up, these up people, the top, yeah. is it? OK. Uh, yes, please. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ashraf Badawa. I'm a consultant cardiologist studying health economics here at the LSE. You talked about China, Russia, Sub-Saharan Africa, India. Um, after the so-called Middle East or Arab Spring, how do you see the economy of countries like Egypt, 
in the coming 30 years. Thank you. Um, first of all, um, I'm of a certain age, so if you want to help me with my heart uh, afterwards, that would be much appreciated. Uh, uh, secondly, um, well, the positive story that one can tell for the Middle East and North Africa, obvious positive story, is demographics. But equally, it's an obvious negative story because you've got lots and lots of young people, um, in some cases, without the opportunity to do uh, very much where you've got sometimes repressive regimes or whatever. Uh, it can you know, create circumstances where uh, people want to do stuff but can't do stuff, don't reach the right level of education, and it becomes a kind of unstable situation, either in terms of people's relationships with the rest of the world or, or relationships internally within those countries. What I think is striking about the Arab Spring, though, more than anything else, is that when it happened, it was a reflection in one sense of, again, of the Fukuyama, neocon, Western liberal belief that this is a wonderful thing. Um, but interestingly, when, when the West discovered that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood had won in Egypt, suddenly, mm, not so sure this was such a wonderful thing. This democracy is a funny old game. You, know, you can end up with results that you weren't necessarily expecting. And, of course, Egypt itself then overthrows the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, Morsi ends up in, well, well, first of all, he ends up with a death sentence commuted to a, a series of uh, concurrent life sentences. Um, so I think what, what you can understand from that, that story is that the transformational process, the belief that the West has that liberal democracy will always be chosen and will inevitably happen, is actually a much more difficult process than the West typically itself imagines. Uh, and so going back to my, my comment earlier about George W. Bush um, and um, uh, you know, the idea that he can transform Iraq into a successful democracy and everyone else will follow like a house of cards, life is just much more complicated than that. Um, and you know, creating a good democracy isn't just about voting, it's about having an independent judiciary, about having freedom of speech, freedom of the press, etc., etc. And you know, lots of parts of the world have really struggled to deliver all those things at the same time. Okay, well, I think we must draw to a close now. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, listen to Stephen. Um, I want to thank you very much for that. Uh, Before I close our session, though, I'd like to remind you that the book is on sale outside, uh, just outside the old theatre here. You can buy it there and then bring it back uh, onto the stage for Stephen to sign, should you so risk, should you so wish. So can I uh, close then by again thanking Stephen very much for his extremely stimulating lecture and perhaps we can...